Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand, and as always, joined by hosts Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini. We start today's show with the news of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo fighting to keep his job after facing allegations of sexual harassment from three women, including two of his former staff members. And we bring in our highlighted guest, Gloria Allred, founding partner of Allred, Morocco, and Goldberg. Check out her documentary as well on Netflix, Seeing Allred, and her book, Fighting Back and Win. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. You're a frequent guest. We really appreciate it. So you obviously are someone who has represented many victims of sexual harassment, including at the hands of some of those prominent men uh, in history. So you're no stranger to these type of allegations. As Joe said... A third woman has now come forward alleging that Governor Cuomo has harassed her. You think that where there's smoke, there's fire. Please explain why. Well, uh, thanks for inviting me as well, Rich. Uh, Of course, we do have a great familiarity in our law firm with cases of sexual harassment. In fact, at the end of 2019, my law firm won a verdict for one victim of sexual harassment against a billionaire, $58,250,000 for that one victim of sexual harassment. And a few months earlier, we tried another case for another victim of the same billionaire And we won a verdict of more than five million dollars. So, yes, we're very familiar with these cases. Uh, It is a problem for Governor Cuomo that a third woman has come forward. Uh, She was not an employee, so it's not an employment sexual harassment case. However, the other two women who came forward before her were both employees at some point, or one was, uh, I don't know if she was going to be an intern or employee, but the point is that she would still be covered by sexual harassment law in New York, and the allegations are serious. One of the women alleged that he grabbed her and kissed her on the lips. Uh, Another woman alleged that he was talking about strip clubs and wanted to know if she had sex with older men and other questions you know, that were not appropriate for the for the workplace, if in fact he said them. And so there is now going to be an independent investigation uh, led by the attorney general of New York, uh, Ms. James. And so this is a big problem for Governor Cuomo. And he also, uh, I don't think it's good to ju- has done a very good job in in offering a an apology or an explanation it was kind of an apology it wasn't an apology if and if you were offended apology which is something as lawyers were all familiar with uh and uh it just didn't fly so and it may be that more women will come forward so this is a big challenge for him 
Lori, you've said where there's smoke, there's fire oftentimes in these types of situations. And you said that mo most recently in the last few days um, in a recent interview that you did. Can you explain for our listeners what you mean when you say that? Well, ordinarily, when one woman and then another woman comes forward against the same person who is accused, it's likely that you know, the floodgates may be open and more women will come forward because, as I always say, courage is contagious. And it does take courage for these women to speak about it. Uh, one, in fact, uh, did file a complaint, apparently, uh, uh, with HR uh, when she was there. Uh, the other apparently or reportedly did not file a complaint on the other hand, she allegedly told some friends about it, uh, kind of contemporaneous reporting, or at some point, at least she reported. So uh, this is a big issue. And it may be that more women will come forward or have come forward in the confidential uh, investigation process that exists in New York uh, for persons who allege they're victims of sexual harassment. So this problem is only getting bigger and more and more questions are being asked. I want to say I really like the governor on many, many issues, but, uh, you know, he, he, he's going to have to be accountable for this. So, Gloria, does that accountability include resigning from office, especially in the wake of the nursing home under counting scandal? And uh, does that accountability potentially include criminal liability? Well, I'm a person who does like due process for the person who is accused, as well as for the person who uh, is alleged to be the victim rich. And so, uh, yes, we've seen the allegations of the victims in the news or the alleged victims. I take those very seriously. We've seen the photo of the third woman who came forward uh, with the governor's hands on his face, on her face. And that's not appropriate. So, I mean, allegedly he asked for consent to kiss her, but that's not the point. First of all, he sh even though he asked for consent, he shouldn't be kissing her. He just met her. Uh, and secondly, uh, she said that he also put his hands on the skin on her back uh, and that she removed it and that he then uh, you know, put his hands on her face. That's not appropriate. You know, keep your hands to yourself. Uh, don't invade somebody else's space or ask permission before you do. <clears throat> it's just as simple as that. So, Gloria, is the New York AG probe the right forum here, or should the alleged victims also be pursuing civil damages? Well, they certainly have that option, Tina. I mean, they would have had an option also of seeking a settlement, at some point, a confidential settlement, I don't think that's going to be possible at this point, since they've spoken out publicly. Uh, they could potentially file a civil lawsuit. You know, how much would they get for a civil lawsuit? You know, it's something to think about, depending on all the facts. We may not know all the facts. We know some of them. And, uh, you know, is there a criminal case here? Well, as we know, uh, that has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, especially in a high-profile case for a prosecutor to decide to file charges. If it could be proven that he grabbed a woman and kissed her on the lips, technically that's a battery. That's an assault and battery. 
could be prosecuted. Would it be? In most cases, it wouldn't. Uh, it doesn't mean it couldn't be. So there are remedies here for the persons who allege they are victims. Um, but I do think that they're looking, it appears that they're looking for a political remedy here, or at least accountability on the governor's part. And the ones who have spoken don't feel they've achieved that yet. That's Gloria Allred. You can find her new documentary, Seeing Allred on Netflix. Go check out her book, Fight Back and Win. Maybe even give her a follow on Twitter, at Gloria Allred. Gloria, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Moving on with the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. And the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to advance President Biden's nomination of Judge Merrick Garland on Monday. So with that, we bring in Max Echemendi of Vincent and Elkins, who also served as a judicial clerk to Judge Garland and Justice Kennedy in the Supreme Court. Max, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be on. Max, when uh, your former boss testified before the Judiciary Committee, he talked I think uh, very convincingly about how, as attorney general, he would enforce the independence of the judiciary and not allow politics to interfere with the job. Knowing Judge Garland the way you do, why is that so important to him, do you think? Well, you know, I think he's been a he's been a fantastic, uh, you know, government servant par excellence through his entire career. Uh, and, I, you know, the, the snarky way that I've heard people say it is that he's sort of a a perfect bureaucrat. Now, I may get in trouble for putting it that way as a former clerk. Uh, you know, I don't mean to be snarky. He's really a perfect public servant. And I can tell you that he takes very seriously, uh, you know, the norms of, of the rule of law. You know, it's something that he, he drilled into us right when we arrived as clerks. Uh, you know, he pointed out, of the, out, out the window of his chambers and said, right over there is Congress. There are bosses. And right behind them, as the Supreme Court, there are other bosses. And, uh, and you know, and, and that uh, we did law and not politics in that chamber. Uh, and that was really true, you know, which is not to say that we always agreed on everything. But, uh, 
but it was not a politicized environment. And it's not the sort of thing that, that he would ever, uh, you know, want either the DC circuit or, you know, I'm sure DOJ to be, um, you know, and, and he, he takes that very seriously and he takes very seriously, uh, you know, the boundaries of a person's job in that role. Um, so, you know, and I just think it's been something that's been with him really ever since his, his time in, you know, in DOJ prior to being a judge. So, Max, Judge Garland helped to investigate and prosecute the Oklahoma City bomber in the 1990s. How do you think that experience will shape his handling of the insurrectionists? Wow. Well, that, you know, that is an interesting question and a tough. I will say this. Uh, I mean, that was the Oklahoma City bombing was a definitive moment in Judge Garland's career. Uh, you know, it was a definitive moment, I, I think, for him, um, you know, and not just in his sort of Wikipedia bio, but, you know, I think in, in shaping the type of lawyer that that uh, he is. Um, you know, so he, you know, he takes concerns about domestic terrorism very seriously. You know, I think that's something that's that's been with him ever since the 90s, you know, with Oklahoma City and the Unabomber and all of that. Um, you know, how it will influence him, I don't know. Uh, you know, there are these these are all very each case is very distinct and different. Right. I mean, you know, Tim McVeigh and, and the Oklahoma City bombing was really a sui, sui generis event. I mean, there's been nothing like it, I guess, other than 9-11, you know, um, how, how it will influence him. I think it remains to be seen. I think it will certainly influence him in this way, which is that it's something that he takes very seriously. I mean, you know, if there is an issue that I think has has been, you know, on his mind and, and definitive of his career for a very long time, it would be concerns about terrorism and, you know, particularly domestic terrorism, which wasn't the big thing when we were clerking for him. I mean, the big thing when we were clerking for him was, you know, foreign terrorism, right? Um, Islamist terrorism. But he came from a domestic terrorism background. I mean, that's how he sort of came on to the map in the 90s when that was really salient. So, uh, you know, I know there's no way that it's it's that background isn't going to shape his approach to these these types of issues. Max, you mentioned that Judge Garland impressed upon you early on that the job was apolitical. Uh, as attorney general, again, when he testified last week, it certainly seems like he wants to be bipartisan and keep politics out of it. He said, I'm not the president's lawyer. I'm, you know, the attorney general. So turning to the possibility of the Justice Department pursuing charges against ex-president Trump, Biden, when he was a candidate, said, I'm not going to I'm not interested in that, of course. You know, it's really not his decision as to whether to pursue charges. It's the Department of Justice's under your former boss. We've seen state charges already, and inevitably there'll be additional state charges, maybe local charges, maybe civil charges or civil suits. How do you think Judge Garland sees uh, liability for ex-President Trump as attorney general? You know, it. well, I haven't I haven't talked to him about it specifically, but, uh, you know, I uh, <laughs> it is not. Look, I mean, anything anything that smells like political vindictiveness is not him. I mean, that is not his style. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's I, I think he's on on the same page uh, with with, uh, you know, President Biden on this and and, you know, wanting to move forward. It's it's inconceivable to me uh, that he would want to be. Uh, you know, grinding axes politically, uh, you know, it, it, it's just not not his style at all. I mean, you know, I what what he what he is really all about is, 
uh, is certainly, you know, fighting crime. And that includes domestic terrorism, as we mentioned earlier, but not only that. Um, and, uh, you know, and enforcing the law. And um, and so, you know, I think to the, you know, to the extent that, it, you know, issues about the politicization of DOJ have been very much, you know, in the news and on people's minds. I think Judge Garland is a great pick uh, for, you know, moving beyond that. Uh, I, I certainly couldn't have thought of, of any better person to pick, uh, you know, if you wanted a really professional DOJ uh, that's, you know, that's not going to be, uh, uh, you know, scraping, you know, thro- throwing mud back uh, vengefully. It just uh, so so he's uh, I, I would not I would not expect him to be, um, uh, you know, at all in the in the mood for, um, uh, you know, trying to, uh, I guess, you know, chase a former president. Uh, to the ends of the earth, not his style. So, Max, Judge Garland, of course, was stripped by Mitch McConnell of one of the most coveted jobs on the planet when his Supreme Court nomination was not given consideration during the last year of President Obama's uh, tenure. Um, he has not commented on how he felt about that and by all accounts went right back to work, which is very consistent with what you just told us about his character. Um, how do you think he felt about how everything went down and knowing that he's not the type to have an ax to grind that notwithstanding, what impact do you think that whole circumstance will have on how he handles the DOJ going forward? I doubt it's going to affect how he handles DOJ going forward. Um, you know, except maybe to, uh, I mean, you know, it's, this is a great capstone for his career, uh, you know, and a really remarkable opportunity, you know, what a, what, what a career path to be, you know, the, uh, uh, a judge on the DC circuit, you know, one of, if not the most respected judge on the DC circuit, uh, and, and, you know, now to be, uh, the attorney general at this critical moment, um, you know, it's it, certainly speaking for us as a clerk community, uh, you know, it was very uh, disheartening what happened uh, with his nomination. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can go back and, and look at, you know, his comments when he was nominated by President Obama. All of that is completely sincere. And, I, you know, I can't you know, it's one of these funny things. I always say, you know, it's, it's like ridiculous to say that anyone deserves to be on the Supreme Court. I mean, it's you got nine slots. One comes up every few years. It's it's just not the sort of thing where you're going to say, oh, you know, like, uh, you know, he 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 had, you know, he should have gotten it in some cosmic sense. Right. Uh, but it was very disappointing what happened because, uh, you know, it's it certainly to us felt like uh, he should have at least, you know, gotten his vote. Um, and, you know, we, we, we would have seen what would what would happen or whether there would have been uh, courage to, to not vote for someone like Judge Garland. Uh, probably not. Um, so, you know, it was very disappointing for us as as clerks. And I have to imagine it was it was very disappointing for him. I mean, you know, I'm sure it would have been, uh, you know, something that he wanted. I, you know, I, I doubt he would, uh, you know, pretend uh, fall into sour grapes and pretend that he didn't want it. But um but, you know, I, I, I wouldn't imagine it uh, particularly, you know, uh, affecting anything he does as, as attorney general. And, you know, spinning back time, being attorney general, I mean, you know, th- this is something that, that you could have easily seen him doing from ages ago. You know, the reputation that he built at DOJ back in back in the day before he was a judge, um, you know, sterling and amazing. And, um, you know, so this is really a, a, a great place for him to to end up. And I. 
I was going to say to end his career. I would hope so. I would hope he will eventually retire. Maybe I shouldn't uh, speculate, but. You can find more about Max's firm, Vincent and Elkins at VELaw.com. Max, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving on with the Legal Faceoff podcast, the city of Chicago and Mayor Lightfoot are being accused of questionable decisions during the summer looting and riots after the killing of George Floyd. And with that, we bring in Deborah Witzberg, the Chicago Deputy Inspector General for Public Safety. Deborah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So, Deborah, last month, the Office of the Inspector General issued its 152-page report detailing the CPD's shortcomings during the protests and riots last spring in the wake of George Floyd's death. Among other things, the report includes what has been described as a plague of communication breakdowns, leadership gaps, lack of planning, um, indiscriminate uses of force, and accountability failures. Can you tell us a bit more about the findings in this report? Sure. I, I think... Most fundamentally, we found a real failure of leadership in the police department um, in, in ways that underserved both members of the public and members of the police department. So I think you know, there are a couple of pieces of that. Certainly, we, we saw evidence of a, a lack of preparedness and planning that kind of ran throughout the response. And then specifically, we sort of saw three landing places of those failures of leadership. And those were specifically with respect to mass arrest procedures. So the police department has a set of procedures which are designed to be implemented in a mass arrest situation, which is one in which because of the volume or the scale of an event, the police department cannot sort of process arrests in the ordinary way. There were real breakdowns in training and communication around those procedures. People hadn't been trained on how to use them. The equipment necessary to use those protocols hadn't been distributed. Um, and, and there was a huge amount of kind of attendant confusion. The second area of failures related to that and had to do with um, use of force reporting obligations. So there are certain circumstances under which members of the police department are required to report uses of force in, in kind of specified ways. And there we found confusion up through the, the very highest ranks of the department um, regarding when and how those responsibilities were impacted by a mass arrest situation. So, so when people had to do different things to report uses of force, that I think resulted pretty clearly in an incomplete record of uses of force during these events. And then finally, you referred to this, um, we found that really the very architecture of the operational response undermined accountability, that members of the police department were deployed without clear or complete deployment records of who was working where and when, were deployed through no individual fault of their own without body-worn cameras, um, further undermining kind of the completeness of the record. And some members of the department from the Bureau of Internal Affairs and from the Force Review Division, who are themselves responsible for some of those accountability functions, 
were deployed out into the response, really compromising their ability to, to kind of do, do their piece of the work of accountability. So I'm interested, you know, the report criticizes not just the CBD, but Mayor Lightfoot and, you know, digging a little deeper as to you've, you've outlined some of the you know, failures, but I guess the underlying question is why, right? Because in order to avoid this going forward, you have to know what happened. And both at the mayor's office and at the high ranks of the Chicago Police Department, you wonder, and you see some parallels, by the way, to what happened in, in Washington, right, with the insurrection. Was this, in your opinion and the opinion of the report, a lack of intelligence, a lack of planning, a lack of experience with this kind of thing? You know, certainly there is no shortage of advance notice, right? This had been going on in other cities. So, you know, as a, as a taxpayer and as a host of a legal podcast, you wonder, why did this all happen? Where did these, why did so many people fail at, at the highest levels of our city government? I think there are sort of two pieces of that, of, of the failure to plan and the, you know, the failure to, to be prepared. There's a long-term one, which has to do with a major city police department and a major city kind of infrastructure system has a contingency plan in place for large-scale civil unrest, right? You would want to imagine that it would. That's kind of the, the longer-term dimension. The shorter-term one has to do with the fact that exactly as you say, in the days leading up to the events that kind of unraveled in Chicago, there was information available about similar events in other major cities in the United States and information to suggest that, that similar events might be coming here to Chicago. And so I think you're right. I, I think this is not a question of a, a lack of information, but um, sort of a failure to act on it. Um, and, and probably important to say not only information from out in the world, but from within the department itself. And we, we spoke with frontline officers who said, you know, anybody who had social media and a smartphone so, Deborah, Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown assumed office right before the protests and riots. And obviously, we all know that his predecessors, and there have been a number of them who have met with widespread criticism over the years, particularly in, in the wake of all of the chronic issues that have plagued the police department. How has he done his first year in office? I mean, clearly, a lot of the criticism is front and center on the mayor. What do you think about how Superintendent Brown has done? I think um, no two ways about it. The fact of his newness during these events is an important piece of the picture here. You know, um, during those events and, and others, leadership of the Chicago Police Department is not a one-person job. There is a senior command staff um, to lead the department. And, and even when there is leadership transition, a police department has to be ready and prepared to do its job every single day. I think, um, you know, I think the measure of this superintendent will be in how he handles um, improvements, the need for which have been laid bare uh, by the events of the last year. And, and it's interesting, Deborah, because, you know, the criticism of Brown when he came in or among the criticisms was that he didn't come up through the ranks of CPD. He's not from here. And, you know, people, uh, you know, brush that off saying he led other big cities and Chicago is no different. Chicago is different. I think part of what we saw this summer, and as reflected in your report, is that there are unique challenges to the infrastructure of the city, to the population, to the racial divide, and all of that is difficult to lead if you didn't come up through the system and you've only been on the job for a few months. I think that's right, and I think that particularly highlights the importance of um, on external communication. There are, there are certainly many people in the department and many people on the senior command staff who have, in fact, come up through the ranks. 
Last question, Deborah. We really appreciate your time on Legal Faceoff. The um, failures that your report, your your office's report, highlight really parallel many of the things we've seen in the CPD over the course of you know many years. And most recently, that was the subject of the federal consent decree that's now you know been in place for two years. Yet the department manages to still miss a lot of the you know uh, deadlines imposed by a federal court. So um, I'm sure you know, the goal of the report is to try to fix some of these problems going forward, but it doesn't seem to be happening to the extent that we need, especially in light of the federal consent decree. So what are the recommendations of the report, if any, as to how to remedy these issues going forward? We don't make specific recommendations in this report, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, One of which is that we know that the department has efforts underway to address some of these problems. Um, I we know that to be true, and I, I remain hopeful um, that those improvements will make a real difference. Um, I think we will see. We, we are sort of keeping a watchful eye on those efforts, um, and I think we may well return to them as, as necessary going forward. I think, you know, the bottom line here from my perspective is that members of the public in Chicago are entitled to a police department that serves and protects them, and members of that police department are entitled to adequate support and guidance. Um, and I remain hopeful that, that that's the direction in which we're headed. Deborah, thanks so much for your insight and your time. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving on to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. Our two guests today, we start with Joey Christopoulos, an original Chicago native, now over in L.A., but he does host the Betting Chicago podcast through the Believe Podcast Network. And Inav Epstein, principal and co-founder of Epstein and Schwartz. Thank you both so much for joining us. And Tina, we start off with quite a story about El Chapo's wife not getting extra lockdown procedures despite her having experience of escaping jail. Yes. So Emma, El Chapo's wife, was arrested last week um, at Dulles. Um, she was trying to distribute what I'll just call a boatload of drugs. Uh, we had cocaine, we had heroin, we had meth, we had a boatload of marijuana. And so she was arrested and then she was put into um, the William Truesdale Adult Correction Center in Alexandria. 
What's really interesting is that we've covered El Chapo over the years on Legal Faceoff, and we all know about his trials and tribulations, both his actual trial as well as his escape from jail um, and his successful escape from jail in Mexico, which Emma, his wife, has actually seen to be um, you know, the brains behind. And so what's really interesting is that notwithstanding this history that she's had um, of helping her husband escape jail, that there hasn't been a need seen to actually put her under any type of extra security for purposes of trying to safeguard against her own escape. So um, the El Chapo um, saga continues, and I'm sure that it will continue for years to come. I find it remarkable, Rich, that there isn't any extra security for her. And I, I have to believe that there's at least a 50% chance that she's going to try to escape. Well, one of the escapes goes by helicopter, right, where they swooped in and dropped a ladder and helped El Chapo get out. So Yeah, very MacGyver. Yeah, she certainly <laughs> has the means and the resources and the experience, because remember, she was alleged to have helped in that last escape in 2015. So, yeah, kind of interesting. You know, maybe the government wants to save some cash, but she's also a lot more agile than El Chapo. She's like, what, 30 years younger than him. So you would think that she's more of a flight risk. So... I bet. And, you know, she's got to be a celebrity in jail, right? I mean, you know, no one wants to mess with, with the, the, the wife of the head of the Sinaloa cartel. So I think she's going to have a pretty good life. Joey, probably akin to the Goodfellas scene with her slicing the garlic thin. She's probably doing pretty well in the detention center, don't you think? Uh, that loaf of bread, it smells pretty fresh. Um, I'm right there with you where... I think is this a cyclical thing of if we keep putting her with extra security, she's going to keep breaking out. I don't know if I've been watching too much Netflix, but this sort of feels like, hey, we do want her to feel comfortable. No extra security. You put someone on the inside. She starts spilling the secrets a little bit. And maybe that's the new tactic. Otherwise, I think this seems like we're doomed to make the same mistake again. Right. Enough. It's kind of like a cliche. And again, you've seen this in films and TV all the time where the you know, real brains behind the operation is the wife. And, you know, the husband goes to jail and she continues to run the family business. I mean, I could think of three or four movie plots like that. Were you surprised to learn that Mrs. El Chapo is involved in the family drug drug business? Um, I was not surprised. Um, I also don't know that she married him for his looks. Just throwing that one in there. <laughs> before, before or after the surgery. Oh, come on. <laughs> Um, look dramatically. He's a great. Yeah, listener. but I don't. I don't know. I think she's in less friendly territory than uh, maybe he was when he escaped. So that might have something to do with it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Rich, it was Paulie used to trim the garlic so thin it would liquefy in the sauce, and that's why everyone loved being in prison at the time. So okay. now it eats. It, it, all right. Well, it looks like Mrs. Chapo will be leaving her place on time, unlike a certain partner in a law firm, as uh, they've voted out the original partner and he's just what, calling calling squats, calling dibs right now? Well, it's kind of like the, uh, the Seinfeld where Kramer got fired but kept showing up for work. Uh, this name partner in a firm that spun off from Boy Schiller. Now, Boy Schiller is a really prominent law firm, right? David Boys argued Bush v. Gore before the Supreme Court has been one of the most prominent lawyers in the country for about 25 years. Um, in fact, you know, we've been trying to get him on the show forever. We have had one of his nemeses on the show, Alan Dershowitz, who always manages to throw in a dig at David Boys when he's on the show because they don't get along at all. 
So Boys uh, Schiller is a big law firm, and they sp- they spin off to a firm called Roche Cyrilnik Friedman. Uh, they spun off in January of 2020. All right, and as often happens, shock among shocks, as Anov will tell you, uh, these partners did not get along very well. Uh, and there was, by all accounts, uh, this one partner who sort of went off the reservation, if you believe the allegations and the complaints. And Cyrilnik, the middle of the three named partners, was expelled per the terms of the partnership agreement. He was thrown out. He was fired. Well, guess what? He didn't leave. Much like Kramer, he decided to keep showing up, keep sending conflicts checks around the law firm. He was advising uh, attorneys to work on his matters, much to the you know shock and chagrin of his partners who thought he was gone. Well, this results in a lawsuit, predictably, and some of the allegations in the lawsuit are, I would love to say they're shocking, Anov and Tina, but they're really not. I mean, Anov is a legal recruiter, so she has seen every piece of drama under the sun play out. This is not shocking to her, but you know, in the in the complaint, you see things like you know, name calling and yelling and, you know, misappropriation of funds. Again, all allegations going on between these partners. Um, and it's in federal court now. And it's really an interesting look, I think, into, you know, what goes on in partner in partnerships and law firms and the unfortunate underbelly of these things. But, Tina, you're a veteran of big law. You're no stranger to, you know, seeing how these things work in real life. Uh, what, what, what do you make of this story? Well, I found this story really interesting because I have been in big law now for 27 years, and I've and that's been my whole career at two different firms. And I can tell you, um, during my tenure as a partner, which has been now for well over 15 years, um, it takes a lot to get expelled from a law firm. Um, and I don't know what their partnership agreement looked like. And granted, this is a special sort of circumstance under which this firm was created about a year ago. Um, but I can tell you just based on my experience of having sort of seen what a partnership agreement typically looks like and what the process and procedures are for expelling a partner, it takes a lot to do that. And um, it usually has to be something pretty egregious. And, um, you know, it makes you wonder why can't people just get along, especially when you're one of the founders of a firm. I think um, no matter how this turns out, it really puts the, the potential viability of the firm in jeopardy, regardless of whether or not he leaves willingly or unwillingly when you have one of the three founders so early in the tenure of the firm, um, having this sort of experience and, the, and this level of controversy just doesn't usually bode well. Uh, Anav, you work with uh, law firms, large and small, to uh, hire um, attorneys and, you know, sometimes large practice groups. So I'm sure you weren't totally shocked by this, but to Tina's point, some of the allegations in this complaint seem rather petty, right? You know, screaming and name calling and not to say that's professional or that's what you want, but listen, it's not that uncommon in any professional partnership to disagree and even to yell and scream at each other. That's par for the course. Uh, what do you make of the allegations in this complaint? You know, one of the things I found interesting in this situation, I just did a little looking at the the profiles of the the three named partners. Um, one I think seems to be a, of an, a 2015 grad, and one's a 2012 grad, and the guy that they're trying to get rid of, somewhat unsuccessfully, it seems, is a 2004 grad. So all relatively junior in terms of you know 
well, we can all say that here, right? Um, relatively junior, especially um, the two guys that are trying to get rid of their their partner. So I wonder if maybe a little bit of youth or naivete or something, you know, is playing in here. Um, yeah, and it's, maybe a woke, under- it's the woke cancel culture, right? You're yelling at me and, and you're mean to me. So we, you need to go. Yeah, it sounds like there's maybe something else at play. I mean, it sounds like it's all about the money, you know, follow the money, right? It's always about the money. There's some uh, high profile, somewhat secret, you know, all caps, code name client that's that's behind this. But um, but I don't know. It's never good as a, as a law firm to air your own dirty laundry, as we all know. So I agree with Tina. I mean, I just think it's got trouble written all over it in terms of, of the viability and kind of, you know, how professional is it to kind of have this all out there? Well, really quickly, before we go into story three, I just want your perspective as a recruiter. How much does this affect that firm's ability to hire and maintain high-level talent, do you think? Uh, I think it's definitely it's Googleable, right? I mean, I think yeah. it's the first thing that's going to pop up. And anybody who um, who isn't already asking a lot of questions because the firm is only a year old is going to be asking a lot of questions now. So I think right. it's definitely... Because- because firm morale is so important and it's so impossible to define, right? And, you know, everyone's always looking to figure out what, it, what it's like to work at a firm. And if you know from this complaint that people are yelling and screaming and fighting and it's a hostile work environment, it's a lot harder to place people at that firm, I imagine. Yeah, but on the flip side, right, if they're taking decisive action, they see this unacceptable behavior, they could kind of spin it and say, hey, you know, we don't put up with that crap here. Yeah, it's a good point. We're different. Moving on to some sobering news of the little girl that was injured in the car accident caused by Andy Reid's son, Britt, before the Super Bowl. Rich, we got an update. It's not too good. Yeah, I mean, the kid was really, um, I think, much more. We, we knew that day, the day before Super Bowl or day, two days before that the child was in critical condition. We didn't know, I think, until today from the attorney representing the family really how significant the injury was. And, you know, the lawyer said that he wants to pursue every avenue. So obviously there'll be a civil suit. But he also said that Reed should be charged to the fullest extent of the law from a criminal perspective. So, listen, from day one, from the time I heard the story, Tina, I was, um, you know, struck by the fact that he had a prior history of some of these issues. Um, Anytime you're a coach's son, I think the conception is that you got that job because of your name rather than your talent. And, um, you know, he was certainly irresponsible and this, this poor, you know, family and child paid for it. So I agree with the lawyer. I think, um, you know, there, there should be as much criminal prosecution as the law entails, not just to punish him, but to send a message that just because you're a prominent football coach or the son of one of the winningest football coaches of all time doesn't let you off the hook. What are your thoughts, Tina? Yeah, I completely agree with you, Rich. Um, I I think that, I mean, I can understand that it's a very difficult situation for everybody. I really feel terribly for the family of the little girl. Um, And I can understand that it's, you know, that there's, there's pros and some cons to being a coach's son. But at the end of the day, as you said, it's not any reason to not be held to any, to the same standard that everybody else is held to. And especially when you do things like getting behind the wheel of a motorized vehicle, a car, what have you, making sure that you're in the shape you need to be in, in order to do that without causing injury to others. Accidents happen when people are completely sober and whatnot, but you know, you have to be held to the same standard that everybody else is. Yeah. Joey, many many point to this episode is one of the main reasons why, 
the Chiefs lost and lost so badly in, in, in the Super Bowl because, you know, the team to a lesser extent, but Coach Reed was distracted by this whole episode, which, you know, you can understand. But what are your thoughts on, on this episode and whether it played a role in how the Chiefs, you know, tanked in the big game? Well, in terms of on the field, that's very fair to speculate because, I mean, not only that, I mean, Andy Reid, his family has had issues off the field for many, many years that has been very difficult for him to, you know, deal with, overcome within that family. So I can't imagine another trauma in that family going on with them. In terms of on the field, the Chiefs just, you know, they had the barber that came in and after two players, they found that they had tested positive for COVID after several negative tests in a row. So they had to remove him from that situation. They had a lot of different injury issues. There's a lot of just you know, bad vibes going on with the Kansas City Chiefs leading into that game. And in terms of Andy Reid's son, it's just an awful story. I mean, personally, just as someone who drives a car, it just sounds like the circumstances in terms of his rate of speed and just the manner of the accident just sound like negligence. You know what I mean? Like, it just wasn't something where, you know, you know, a casual fender bender. And uh, for people that just drive at high rates of speed, I mean, I just really hope this is just another cautionary tale, not just in terms of ingesting substances, but just driving at high rates of speed at night that can just injure and hurt other people. And I'm sure Andy Reid's family right now is, is heartbroken. I know from everyone that with teammates that Andy Reid is a good man and treats people well with respect. And I'm sure he will reach out to that family. But again, I'm in agreement with you guys. This definitely does need to go through the legal system and his son could be definitely looking at some time. Maybe this Canadian comedian can make some jokes at Britt Reed's expense instead of the people that, you know, don't really deserve it. Uh, Rich, Mike Ward is facing some repercussions from jokes he made a decade ago about Celine Dion and a singer from Canada with a genetic disorder. Yeah, as uh, our loyal listeners and, and watchers know, I am a, a loyal Canadian. I'm a dual citizen, but I grew up in Montreal. So this story was really interesting to me. And, you know, sort of goes the idea of, where the line between your First Amendment rights, the First Amendment is not, you know, a Canadian term, but they have basically the same rights, where that line and the line of, you know, hate speech or bullying or cyberbullying begins. Because in this case, it was, a, you know, there's a stand-up comedian, as you mentioned, Mike Ward, and he has been known uh, in Quebec, where he's from, um, but also across Canada, to be, you know, an insult comedian, for lack of a better term, which, you know, is a genre of comedy that goes back to Don Rickles and, and well beyond, even Lenny Bruce. And he made a joke about this individual, Jeremy Gabriel, who was born with Treacher Collins syndrome, which is a genetic disorder that can affect your facial body, uh, bone structure and cause deafness. So not, you know, a nice thing to do. It turns out that he um, went after him and then he was sued uh, by Gabriel, and now the case has been, now the case is uh, in front of the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and there, there's a couple of things at play here. Again, it's the right of an individual to exercise their art. Mike Ward is saying that he's merely expressing his opinion, he's merely you know expressing a piece of art, and he has every right to do so, versus an individual's right to enjoy you know, themselves and, and, and be at liberty and not be made fun of. The other interesting subplot here is there's a difference between Canada, Canadian law and Quebec law. Um, in fact, the case was brought before the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal. That is just a special court that deals with 
cases related to discrimination and harassment, and he lost, the comedian lost there. Now, I don't want to get too deep into a hole here, but you have to understand that Quebec culture and Canadian culture are very much at odds, right? Quebec, over about four or five times in the last 50 years, has tried to secede from Canada. There's been an actual vote about secession. So what's, what's interesting here is not only do we have the individual's right to express themselves versus the right not to be bullied, Tina, but you also have this mashup of Canadian law, which is, you know, governs the entire province, but Quebec law that is a little more strict and protective of the individual's rights here. And I promise you that any Quebec jurist is very mindful of that in saying this is a Quebec case and we don't want you know, Canada, Canada's laws to overwhelm us. But who do you side with here, the comedian or the alleged victim? Well, you know, that's a tough call, Rich. I mean, I think, you know, it's very interesting and uh, about your comments about the Quebec overlay to this, because, you know, that I think is something that's really important to the analysis as, as to how this particular case would come out. Um, but just as a general matter, I mean, I've done quite a bit of study, like in law school and so forth, on the First Amendment. And I think we all know that the First Amendment is a pretty strong um, law here in the United States. So if we look at it from the frame of reference of the U.S., it takes a lot for something to be defamatory, for example, or for something to constitute hate speech. It doesn't that being said, it doesn't make what the comedian is doing right. And I think that there's a somewhat of a high standard for bullying too, especially when you look at it in the context of what the comedian does. He's an insult comedian, as you said. And I think that at least with regard to the U.S. analysis, I think in some ways it's better for people to vote with their feet and not go to see this guy if they don't approve of the message um, I don't like it one bit. I wouldn't want to go see this guy. But I think that the lens through which this type of speech is analyzed is a pretty tough lens for finding the right that that the speech should be suppressed. So, and, you know, some entertainers, a lot of artists, and to me, this boils down to it's no different than you know if you if you find this comedian responsible then how is that different from any comedian who goes after anyone in the audience, right? I mean, it's, it's a long-standing, you don't have to be an insult comic. You know, most any stand-up comedy routine says, oh, I see, you know, I see, I see you sitting in the audience with your wife. You insult the wife, you insult the, the husband. That's kind of part of the deal when you go to a comedy show, and that's part of what you expose yourself to. So this individual has a disease. That's terrible. That's sad. But how is that different from anyone else in the audience who knows what they're getting in for, getting into when they go to a comedy show. Well, I think the kid wasn't in the audience, right? The kid was sort of a public figure. Mm. Um, but I agree with Tina. I think this is sort of maybe one of those problems that doesn't get solved in the legal arena, right? This is just kind of decency and be a better person. Um, and I think the fact that he was a kid kind of makes it just rub me even more the wrong way. But but I, I right. I mean, I sort of agree with you from a legal perspective. I don't know that... Um, the law is maybe the best place to have this discussion. I think it's just a discussion of what we as a society think is, is entertaining and what isn't. And yeah, don't go see these people. Don't buy their stuff. You know, if they're, if they're, you know, behaving in a way that we don't think is positive. Yeah. He was 14 at the time. You're right. And Joey, um, again, you know, I think 
many First Amendment advocates, including Alan Dershowitz, who I, you know, I'm a big fan of, obviously, and he's been on our show a lot, will tell you it's not the speech that you like that you need to protect. It's the speech that you don't like. And it's the very speech that you find most abhorrent, like, you know, uh, Nazis marching in Skokie or, you know, white supremacists marching on Washington or a comedian insulting even a 14 year old's uh, congenital, you know, disease. That's the speech that First Amendment advocates would tell you is the one that you need to fight the most for because it's so abhorrent and, you know, it's not what you like. And that's what the framers of the Constitution really intended. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you. I mean, it is a free speech issue. I was very fortunate. Obviously, I'm from Chicago. I went to Second City. I did sketch comedy for about 14 years. And this just seems to be a case of punch down comedy at its worst. Um, and when it what happens is really you really have to look at the comedian's intention in this particular case. And his intention is to push a boundary, is to make an audience uncomfortable. And he thinks that that's going to get laughs. In this particular case, he was using, you know, this kid who did become a public figure that had a disease disability, you know, as a vehicle at the expense to make a certain joke. I would just say to this comedian that, like, good for you, man. I mean, I don't know why you're dying on the hill of this type of comedy. I think it's very, very difficult to pull off. I personally do not really enjoy this type of comedy of, of trying to intentionally make people feel uncomfortable and often by doing it at the expense of other people that can possibly be hurtful. And for me personally, I just don't think it's a way to have a long career. It's not a way to become a legacy comedian. You mentioned Don Rickles earlier you know, we could all say, hey, that was a different time. But again, Don Rickles, that was a that was a performance. There was an element of charm to it. There was always that wink, wink. I'm kind of kidding. I feel like this comedian, Mike Ward, was actually trying to take that audience to that place to try and reveal an ugliness, not with just in himself, but within that audience. And for me, I just don't know if that's longstanding comedy that really works. I agree. I agree. I think we all agree. But but then don't go see him. Like Tina said, totally. Oh, don't waste the courts. This is the Supreme Court of Canada, for Christ's sake. Like, don't yeah. you think they have more important things to dwell on than whether, you know, someone's offended by what's, you know, we all agree it's disgusting, terrible jokes. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, that's and that's the whole thing. I don't know what the gentleman is doing now, but it's really clear that he probably isn't like a, a very popular, an immensely popular comedian. And I would just guess and, and and gather that he will not continue to be that successful if he continues to try and put out that material, not just because of where we are heading, but just, I don't know, playing that game where you try and, you know, say things that are hurtful or just be like, hey, I'm going to be that guy and I'm going to go there. I just think that that comedy is just so niche and so small that and, and further and further you get along, the audience just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, I'm just not on board with it. And that's just what that guy wants to do. I'm on board with the free speech and I feel bad for the kid, you know, who obviously had bullying because of that. But I just don't think it's comedy that lasts. So, I mean, that's his problem. I love that we got to hear Rich touch on Canadian law on this podcast. I should have worn, worn my barrister's wig in, in Quebec. You have to wear you have to wear it. Literally, you have to wear a wig when you go to court. <laughs> well, so here we are uh, in America talking about some Canadian law. I'd love to also know what Canadians think about this Vermont man that claims his car was towed, towed solely for flipping off an officer. And now, Rich, he's fighting for the right to give the bird to the blue. Well, Vermont is practically Canada, by the way. I grew up about an hour from the Vermont border. We used to go to this town, St. Albans, 
all the time, honestly, where it happens, a little town. We used to go there to, you know, stock up on things like Slim Jims and Dr. Pepper, which we couldn't get in Canada, believe it or not, for my whole formative life. So breaking yeah. the law, breaking the law. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> crazy. We were just crazy teenagers the other time crossing the that mighty border to get uh, to get uh, Doritos. Sir, can I see um, what you're drunk? <laughs> absolutely. So this guy is suing the police force. He's got the ACLU behind him. And basically, he's alleging that his rights were violated because he was towed only because, if you believe his allegation, he gave the finger. And, you know, he's alleging that he that that is a constitutionally protected uh, piece of freedom of speech. Tina, do you think the framers intended when they wrote those words to include flipping off a police officer? And, you know, does this does this have any merit? I mean, What's important to realize here is the charges were dismissed, right? So, you know, from a defense perspective, I would say, get on with your life. There's no damages as we always, as we frequently see in these ridiculous lawsuits. And so this is just, you know, sort of trying to make an example of things, but should you have the right to flip off a police officer? Again, that's assuming that the police officer's actions were in reaction to doing that. Who knows if they were, but... Well, see, that's the whole thing is that for all we know, this guy, you know, is framing it as if that was the only thing that happened and that there was this causality that led to, you know, it was the flipping of of the bird and then, you know, the car gets towed. Um, If that is true and that's all that happened, I think flipping the bird is protected speech, just like the insult comedian we just talked about. Do I think it's smart? Do I think it's right? No, but it's a form of expression. It just happens to be a gesture rather than spoken. But, um, but you know, people, I, I, I see it as akin to saying a swear word. So to me, it's the gesture version of saying a swear word. And I think it's ridiculous, the notion that you put somebody, like you tow their car or do something else because they said a swear word. Yeah. You know? uh, earlier with Deborah Whisper, we covered the, you know, city and the police department here in Chicago's failures to curb the violence we saw in Chicago over the summer. Certainly in those protests, you saw a lot worse than someone flipping off a police officer. You know, police officers were in many cases attacked verbally, physically. So to Tina's point, you know, grow up, big deal. All you're doing is flipping up the bird. Again, who knows if the police, the police are obviously, you know, they, they, he was cited for disorderly conduct and obstructing traffic. I don't think flipping the bird qualifies as that. So the police would have a different perspective, obviously. Yeah, I think it's probably this. This is probably wrapped up in the sort of the larger issue of police brutality, targeting of um, you know minorities, um, people of color. Right? It's wrapped into this whole bigger conversation of when police feel threatened and when they don't feel threatened. You know, is there an argument to be made if someone flips you off? You know, that's threatening you know, what kind of speech is threatening. So, you know, while it's sort of like the the story itself is sort of funny to some extent, right? It's kind of supposed to be this lighthearted thing. I, I mean, I think just given kind of where we are right now and where we've been, um, you know, for, for a long, long time, but where, where we've been with much more media focus since last May, you know, I can see how this becomes a little bit more complicated. Um, but no, I mean, I think should they have towed his car just because he flipped them off? No. Do I agree with Tina? Is that a smart thing to do? Is that something I would do if I was pulled over? No. 
Tina, what's easier, smooth talking your way out of a citation when you flipped off a police officer or getting out of a traffic ticket while performing plastic surgery on a Zoom meeting? I don't know. Apparently, um, talking your way out of a traffic ticket when you're in the middle of surgery. Um, so this is a crazy story. I mean, it's funny. When I first heard this story a couple days ago, it made me think of the Zoom cat that appeared in court uh, a few weeks ago. I mean, that was insane. But this is right up there. So a Northern California plastic surgeon um, appeared virtually before the Sacramento court commissioner to try to um, talk his way out of a traffic ticket. The issue is, is that he thought it was appropriate to do this when he was in the middle of surgery, where you can actually see in the background the patient on the operating table. Now, truth be told, for the listeners out there who are you know, gasping at this point, he claims that there was another person back there, another surgeon who was actually working on the patient at the time. And so he wasn't actually making the patient wait in the middle of the surgery while he was talking to the judge. And thank goodness that the judge felt uncomfortable enough that they ended up continuing the case until, until next month. But I have to wonder what the patient on the table when they woke up and found that this guy was actually appearing in Zoom court. I, I, I just, I, I find this so outrageous. I, I, I can't even do it without speech. I'm so, I'm so outraged by this. Probably nothing sense that uh, he was contemplating when he signed that, that, that piece of paper. But Joey, this is the problem with you Californians. You're obsessed with plastic surgery for Christ's sake. Stop the surgery, do your court thing, and then go back to it for God's sake. This one was my favorite story because this is such a power move. I love this so much. You want me in court? Oh, I'll be in court. But, oh, I'm sorry. I'm doing something very important. I could either save this life or you could dismiss this ticket right now. And I don't know. I would love to hear from um, our litigation team that's on this wonderful panel today about what they think. Doesn't this open up the door to all sorts of things? I mean, if I have a court date and I come on the Zoom hearing and I've got eight fake poisonous snakes attacking me right now. I can get out of that court hearing right now. It's all about, you know, propping up the, you know, of course, maybe I'm like making a a delicious Italian beef. Can I call you back? Maybe that won't cut it, but it seems like there's a way to heighten this where it just seems like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm busy right now. Oh yeah. The court thing. Excuse me. Like, remember he's a plastic surgeon. So presumably he was doing elective surgery. He was doing a tummy tuck or, you know, saving a nose. Yeah. Saving a nose. So, Probably could have put that up. But, but, hey, that no. was a very important nose out here in California. That was a major flex on his part. Um, and um, I'm just saying, you know, is this is this opening up a Pandora's box? I'm not sure. And you know, lawyers like to think they can multitask and do a lot of <laughs> yeah. different things at once. But I mean, come on, this is taking it a bit of a step too far. And it turns out the medical board now is looking into, you know, whether he actually violated some ethical and, and uh, professional regulation rules, which he probably did. I hope so. Right. I, I, right. I hope so, too. I mean, I think I agree with Joey. It was like a total and it worked move, you know, to get this thing continued. But, yeah, that's ridiculous. I, I mean, the judge was way too. By the way, the judge, he handled it well. But I thought it was way too lenient. Most judges that I appear of have been in front of at the Daily Center. I mean, if I'm a minute late, they would they would find me, let alone, you know, showing up in scrubs during a Zoom thing while you're operating. I mean, Judge Flanagan would literally throw you in jail if that, if that would happen at, at most courts. Right. I think it's taken the pajama bottoms, you know, professional top thing a little too far. I agree. 
He's just like, excuse me, judge. Hold on. What's that sound? Oh, no, he's still alive. He's still alive. You can keep going. <laughs> yeah, that sound is me sawing into his liver. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what's that sound? Yeah. Word has it when the patient woke up, he heard what had happened. And he's like, wow, I thought I was two-faced. <laughs> anyway. Uh, ben, stick in a rim shot for that one. <laughs> so, well, speaking of ways to not get hired or maybe not keep your job, uh, Tina, a law firm released an article from four years ago. It's uh, just catching attention now, though, is it's it's showing all the different ways of how not to get hired by a law firm. Well, and I would love to hear Anab's response to this because of the field that you're in, you do legal recruiting. And so Harrison Barnes is actually a pretty well-known legal recruiter. He's been around for many years. He's the founder of BCG Attorney Search. And this article that he wrote is actually four years old. Um, and it's a list of like a couple of dozen characteristics um, of, of what not to do and who not to be when you're trying to get hired by what they, what they call prestigious law firms. And the reason why it's getting attention now is that apparently it was being recirculated and revived through various social media channels over the last couple of weeks. And when it's looked at through the lens of everything that we as a society and a profession have been through and have seen over the last several years, particularly with regard to client commitments, to diversity and whatnot. Some of what he says um, is being seen as pretty highly objectionable by certain folks and um, as being discriminatory. You know, just to give an example of some of the things that he says, um, the types of lawyers who made his list include lawyers who aren't motivated by money or prestige, lawyers with anti-corporate values and lawyers who don't think the work of the law firm is important, people who have failed the bar exam multiple times, lawyers who are currently unemployed, lawyers who don't connect with interviewers, and the list goes on and on. Um, I find it interesting that something that's been out there, and I remember actually because I have been involved in the recruiting for the law firms that I've been at over my career. And I remember when this article originally came out that it had gotten some traction, at least among the recruiting folks within firms, as well as um, legal recruiters who recruit attorneys for different law firms. Um, but it, it's just interesting. And it, it makes a lot of sense that through today's lens, it's looked at quite differently than it was back four years ago. I'm sorry, but I got to just call BS on this, on this thing, because it's, it, I'm going to file it under the uh, very legal term of no shit. You know, law firms don't want to hire lawyers with a sense of entitlement. Wow, what a newsflash. Another category was lawyers, as you mentioned, Tina, they don't want to hire lawyers who don't connect with interviewers. I mean, does any employer want to connect, want, want to hire someone who doesn't connect with them? I mean, some of the categories you understand. Of course, you know, if you're unemployed, maybe uh, if you fail the bar exam, right? But come on, I mean, most of the stuff is common sense. I think it's a case of, unfortunately, use a cliche, sort of woke culture. Uh, I think it's a non-story, really. But, but Adolf, as Tina mentioned, this is your wheelhouse. You see people every day, and you're training them, and you're also uh, representing employers who are hiring people. Did any of this come as a shock to you? No, I agree with you, Rich. I think this is much ado about nothing. This particular um, article, and Harrison writes a ton. You know, there's a ton of other stuff that he's written out there that um, – you know, it's interesting and that, you know, other people might 
you know, agree or disagree with this particular list. I mean, I sort of wrote to myself, you know, kind of obvious. Um, you know, one of the things I would say that I, I kind of take issue with is, you know, he said, Lord, you know, prestigious again to Tina's, you know, so-called prestigious. What is a prestigious firm? But, you know, the top tier firms or whatever you want to call them don't want to hire people going laterally, right? Somebody is doing the same thing and then they don't want to hire someone going up market or they don't want to hire someone going down market. So I, I disagree with some of the premises. I don't think all of this is actually true. I think there are plenty of reasons why firms will hire from a very comparable firm across the street. They do it all the time. Um, and I think that there's a lot of reasons why a, a smaller firm wants to hire someone who's big firm trained and why a big firm would hire someone who's small firm trained. So, you know, part of it I thought was obvious. Nobody wants to hire someone they don't um, see as motivated, as interested in in the job as wanting to stay there long term but some of it i thought was probably you know not wholly accurate either all right we're gonna go to joy but Anna, we want to come back to you for the final word because we, actually we have a lot of law students who listen and young lawyers who listen to our podcast we've been on for six years so we're very grateful to have a pretty nice following think before we go to joey we're gonna come back to you what's the number one mistake that interviewees do during the course of an interview from your perspective so give that a minute of thought Joey, what are your thoughts on this? Again, I mean, fairly obvious uh, that people, should, you know, firms don't hire people who they don't connect with. Uh, yeah. And, you know, some like that don't prioritize money, you know, someone that isn't, you know, that seems to be just kind of that goes along with, you know, what you're getting into some of it for when you're trying to develop clients and everything. Yeah. Bad grades, uh, failing the bar a couple of times. I think that'll pretty much do it. I think that'll might cancel you out. My only pushback, and maybe this is the part that I don't understand, is the concept of whether you're unemployed or not. Me personally, I, I, I can understand that on its face, that can seem like perhaps an unhirable quality, but there are so many different variables in life of why someone would leave a previous occupation. You know, maybe they were at a firm that was dealing with two young upstarts trying to squeeze out a third guy, and maybe that wasn't the environment or atmosphere they wanted to be in. So, in my personal opinion, just because that person was unemployed, I don't think that should have them get checked off the box. You would want to maybe do a little bit more due diligence there to see if that person is qualified because you do, in the end, want to hire the best people. That yeah, was the only one point. I'd push back on. Yeah. It's a great point. And, and I think the piece you know makes makes that good point. And Tina, you know, to Tina's good point, listen, I think that more than ever, we're conscious of the fact that some things that you have in your background aren't anymore or shouldn't be any more deal breakers, right? And we see, for example, that leading to legislation, which we have in Illinois, you know, where, uh, where you can't ask about people's prior compensation anymore, which is a good thing, I think. So I think to the point of the article, you know, it shouldn't be an automatic, nothing should be an automatic deal breaker, right? But the reality is, you know, there are certain things on this list that, that, that are. So, Aina, back to you for our final word. What's your, what's your advice to people looking for a job right now what is the um, biggest thing that people do wrong in an interview that, that they should do right? I think a lot of people sell themselves short. That's, I would say, you know, you really um, need to come in and be honest and be prepared, but don't sell yourself short. You know, um, I, I really encourage young people, especially, um, I think they are sort of focused on maybe what they don't know or what they haven't done. Um, or what they perceive in their background as sort of being a, a failing. And I urge people to really come in with a totally different mindset of, you know, this is what I bring to the table. This is why I can do this. Um, give me a chance, you know, give me a chance. 
That's all the time we got on this week's edition of the Legal Face-Off podcast. Big thanks to our guests on Legal Grab Bag, Joey and Inov, and also a big thanks to all of our guests on today's show as well. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Search the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. For our hosts, Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini, I'm Joe Brand. We'll see you next time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...